wow, that was a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of good things happening in our church family. And I want to begin this time um, by saying thank you to Randy Ray uh, for the excellent work he did in preaching last week. Um, I was at a Kibo Group board meeting. Kibo Group Uganda is one of the three mission points that we support here. It's a part of what Becca and I spent uh, eight years doing in Uganda uh, years ago. Um, and so I was at that board meeting, and uh, it was a tremendous time. It was a great reminder of uh, why we do what we do, why we choose to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And uh, when I say we, I certainly mean Becca and me in those years, but us together today. It's, it's a wonderful reminder of that. But uh, Randy did such an excellent job, as always, in illustrating and sharing and digging into Scripture and inviting us into that and into the transformation that God has waiting for us in His Word. And, uh, of course, um, handled the disruption of the morning uh, so well uh, at the end. And so thank you, Randy. Thank you, Randy, uh, for proclaiming good news to us last week. One of the main points Randy made was that trusting in God is the best way to live. It's the best way to live. It's better than trusting humans. He spelled that out from God's word in the book of Jeremiah. But trusting God, even if it is the best way to live, does not mean that it's an automatic result that that trust in Him is going to lead to success. Sometimes we trust the Lord and in our immediate circumstances and life condition, we may not see what the world would define as success. Health. Um, of our bodies, health of relationships, wealth, where everything is just going well and we don't have a, a care or a concern in the world. Trusting God, in fact, oftentimes comes with some sort of hardship, some sort of suffering in which our faith, the true faith that we have in God, our Father, in Christ the Son, and in the Holy Spirit who lives in us is really tested. And his point is a perfect introduction to the emphasis I'm going to make today as I talk about two Bible characters from the Old Testament. As we continue in this series, Believing God, stories of faith from the Old Testament. The two characters I'm going to talk about today and point to are Joseph and Job. I'll spend a little bit more time talking about Joseph than Job. And we'll come back to the life and some of the things that Job faced. In a, in a few weeks, we'll come back to him. Let's begin with Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story is he's one of the sons, the 11th son, born to Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Abraham being the one that God had chosen, that through him, through Abraham and his descendants, he would bless, pour his favor on, love, serve, redeem the whole world. Not just Abraham and his immediate descendants and his future descendants, but the whole world. That was the plan. And Joseph is the 11th son born to Abraham. But the only son born to his favored wife, Rachel. And it perhaps was that favored status 
coming from Rachel that he began to heap more kinds of blessing and privilege on Joseph, the youngest of the brothers, than his other sons. And they became jealous, they became envious. And out of that jealousy and envy, Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery. They go back home and tell their father, Jacob, that they had found his garment, this richly ornamented garment that Jacob had made for Joseph, and they had put some blood of an animal on it and just said it was a wild animal, must have gotten him. And they, in their minds, were done with Joseph. That was it. Jacob, of course, mourns, but the story picks up with Joseph having been sold into slavery to an Egyptian named Potiphar. Potiphar takes him to his home and very quickly Joseph rises through the ranks and and becomes his most trusted servant. He is a slave, he is a servant of Potiphar. And as a slave, he had to do whatever Potiphar wanted him to do. But Potiphar saw blessing on Joseph's life. In chapter 39, verse 2, says the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So he goes from hardship. Some of that hardship that he had experienced with his brothers was brought on perhaps by himself. As he shared a dream that he had had in which it made him look superior to his brothers and just adding to the envy that they had had. But nevertheless, he had experienced that hardship, but now out of the hardship is restored to this place of prominence and blessing. Everything that he does is blessed, and so Potiphar puts him in charge. But hardship follows the blessing and the privilege. Potiphar's wife seduces Joseph, but he refuses her advances. So she frames him, and she accuses him of attempted rape. Potiphar believes his wife and throws Joseph into prison. And apparently, it seems that at this time, it's the end of the blessing, end of the privilege. It was a good run for Joseph. But even in prison, a prison in which, because Potiphar was a wealthy man, most likely, he's in there with other important officials who worked in the government. And while he's in prison, there's still success. God doesn't look at Joseph's situation and his circumstance. God doesn't look at Joseph in prison and go, well, boy, wish I could have blessed him. Wish he could have stayed out of trouble. Instead, in chapter 39, starting in verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Just like 
he had experienced in Potiphar's house, everything that Joseph touches is blessed and privileged. And the warden sees this. He sees Joseph as somebody that he can trust. So in the midst of this really difficult situation for him, in the midst of prison, God blesses him. Now there were a couple of officials, king's prisoners, who'd been put in prison and that were, that were with Joseph. The former cupbearer of the king and the former baker of the king. And they both have dreams that are disturbing and they don't know what to do with these dreams. Joseph says, well, God can give you the interpretation. God owns dreams. He can give you the interpretation of these dreams. And he tells the cupbearer that your dream means that in a short time you're going to be restored to your former position and you'll be serving the king again as his cupbearer. The baker's dream didn't have a very good ending. It was going to turn into a nightmare. Because for the baker, he said, yeah, um, yeah, your dream means that shortly in a few days you're going to be hung on a pole and birds are going to come and eat your flesh. Sorry. Pretty tough. Break the news. And both of those things happened just as Joseph had interpreted. He told the cupbearer before he was released from prison to go back and serve the king, remember me when you get to the king. But Genesis chapter 40 verse 23 says that the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. For two years. But two years later, the cupbearer's memory is jarred when Pharaoh has a dream. And it eludes the understanding of Pharaoh and of all the officials and all the dream interpreters and all the wise men of Egypt. They can't figure it out either. They don't know what to do with it. And the cupbearer goes, oh, I really messed up. And he tells Pharaoh about Joseph and what had happened with his dream and the baker's dream. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph to come and interpret the dream. And Joseph interprets it and says your dream means that with these healthy cows and these healthy stalks of grain that consume the that are consumed by unhealthy cows and and unhealthy weed looking plants it means that you're going to have seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine so really you ought to choose a very wise man, somebody who knows how to interpret things and can organize things. I don't know where you're going to get someone like that. And Joseph was chosen for the job. And so he goes once again from hardship to privilege and blessing because God's hand was on him. And the Lord's favor was with him. Joseph even ends up naming his firstborn, born to him there in Egypt, Manasseh, because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. And his second son was named Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. 
Now let's pause there on Jake, Joseph's story. Think about the character of Job. In the book of Job, Job is described as a blameless, upright man who fears God and shuns evil. This is the very beginning of the book in chapter 1. He's also very wealthy. He has thousands of cattle, a thousand yoke of oxen. He's got camels. He's got donkeys. He's got servants. He's got ten children, seven sons, three daughters. The story says that he was the greatest man in the East. Everybody knew about Job. He had it all. Why wouldn't you know about Job? the blessed man, the favored man. But at the end of chapter 1, well, I'll tell you, he's so righteous and blameless and upright that when his children have a party, he comes in behind them to clean up any moral messes that might have been made. He offers sacrifices on their behalf in case they've sinned against God. That's how upright he is. But there's this scene at the end of chapter 1 in which the accuser, Satan, comes to God, and there's this exchange. We're not going to go into the details about that today, but the accuser essentially says, of course Job is blessed, and of course he's faithful because he's blessed, but if you took away the blessings, he wouldn't be faithful anymore. He wouldn't be upright. He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't shun evil. He wouldn't be doing those things for his kids. If your hand was not on him, he would not be obedient anymore. And of course, this exchange, God allows him, allows the accuser to torment Job. And essentially what happens initially is all of his stuff is taken out and all of his kids are killed. And it's one story after another. As soon as one bad report is finished, there's another servant coming to give another bad report saying, I'm the only one who survived it to come and tell you kids are gone, his, his stuff is gone, but he doesn't curse the Lord. The accuser comes back to God, says, I need another shot at him. Essentially, God allows him to do this as long as he doesn't take the man's life, and he inflicts all kinds of sickness on Job's body, so he's covered with sores. He scrapes himself with a piece of pottery just to get some relief from the sores on his body. So this one who was the greatest in the East is now in all kinds of suffering. His wife even says, you should just curse God and die. He has some friends who come to him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are the first three friends, and they come and they sit with him for a week, and they don't even say a word. His suffering was so great. They just sit there in silence and they just look at Job and have nothing to say. But as soon as they do have something to say, it was, Job, obviously you've done something wrong. You've been unfaithful to God. You've disobeyed God or otherwise you wouldn't be having this kind of suffering. So repent, confess your sin and repent to him and maybe he'll restore you. And the rest of the book, for the next 30-plus chapters, is this exchange between Job and his friends about what's going on in the world and what's going on in Job's life and what kind of God is God anyway. 
but it's just an exchange between Job and his friends. Finally, another friend, younger than the other three, comes in towards the end. His name is Elihu. He comes in, and he adds the same kind of message, even though he presents himself as different and wise. He adds the same kind of message that the other three friends had. And so it's just insult upon insult for Job, who maintains his innocence before God, maintains his innocence before these three friends, but won't curse God in the midst of it. But throughout the story, there's no mention, no answer, no voice of God until the very end. So while Joseph goes from blessing the hardship to blessing the hardship to blessing the hardship, goes in and out of this, Job goes from blessing to hardship. In the end, God does show up and restores blessing on Job's life. So he ends with blessing. I want to pull a couple of things together. Three observations here together for these two characters in the Bible. What Joseph and Job have in common. Now you might find your own things that you see in their stories that you could have uh, add to this list, but here are the three things that I want to talk about. One, they both experience hardship. Hardship, just as Randy was preaching from Jeremiah 17 last week, hardship is, is not just going to be for those who are disobedient and unfaithful to God. It's going to be across humanity. There's a curse on the world. And even those of us who are in Christ, even those of us who follow Jesus, what we know is that following Jesus sometimes directly means suffering. While life is put back together by the Messiah, the one who makes right all that's gone wrong in the world, what we know is that we live in that already not yet, that space, that gap, that overlap that we talked about for so long in the book of Romans. Where we've been saved by Jesus, we, we've been brought into this new life, and yet we still experience the residue of the curse in our lives. They both have hardship even in the midst of their faithfulness which is the next point. They both experience hardship, but secondly, they both remain faithful to God. Joseph stays faithful to God, and the outcomes, in fact, I would suggest that the outcomes of his actions and the few times that we take in his words, he doesn't do a lot of talking, especially in the first part of the story, his words lead us to believe that he has remained steadfast in seeking God and likely even steadfast in prayer, even though we have no recorded prayers from Joseph. In chapter 39, verse 9, in the midst of this, uh, these, uh, the pressure from Potiphar's wife for him to commit adultery and to have sex with her, this is what Joseph says, My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He refused. He was not going to pursue what was best for Joseph in the moment. He was going to pursue God first and what was best for Joseph in the big picture of things. So he does not sin against God. He does not violate the trust that was given to him from Potiphar. And he doesn't sin with Potiphar's wife. 
he remains faithful. Job stayed faithful to God, even though his wife tells him to curse God and die, he won't have any of it. One of the great songs that we've sung from Matt Redman over the last few years is, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That comes from Job. My Redeemer is praised. Let him be praised. He gives, he takes away. Let the name of the Lord be praised. That's his response. Job especially demonstrates that being faithful to God does, does not always mean that everything goes his way. But he will not give up on God as angry as he gets with God at times. With his own words, the confusion that he has before God is raw throughout the book of Job. Uh, he brings it to God in powerful ways. We'll look at this in a few weeks. But the third thing that both Joseph and Job experience, and this is where we'll end, this is the point of today, they both experience the silence of God. The hiddenness of God, the silence of God in the midst of the inscrutable impossible to understand or interpret. Circumstances is one of the most difficult aspects of our human existence. If we acknowledge God, why are there times that it seems that God doesn't acknowledge us? With emphasis on it seems that he does not acknowledge us. In the book of Job, it would be easy for us to look at that and to look at Job's life and to see that in the experience between Job and God, Job never deserts God. But there's a time that Job and certainly the reader has to wonder whether God has deserted Job. There's just silence. Prayer after prayer goes unanswered. Joseph. I want you to think about the book of Genesis. For those of you who are familiar with it, if not, that's okay. The book of Genesis begins with a God who speaks. He speaks creation into existence. Before there's anything to hear it, he speaks creation into existence. And then God proceeds to speak to Adam, Eve, even the serpent, Cain, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but when Joseph arrives on the scene, even with every major character in the Bible at the beginning in Genesis, God speaks to every major character directly, direct conversation, until you get to Joseph. 
and there's not one direct conversation between God and Joseph. Now, we look at the story, and we believe that in the midst of the silence, Joseph has somehow accepted the presence of God. But is it not curious that God is having conversations directly one-on-one with every single major character in the Bible to that point until Joseph shows up? Have we not felt that way before? God speaks to everybody else but me. God's direct with other people. Other people seem to hear his voice fine. God seems to answer other people's prayers, but he doesn't seem to be very interested in my prayers lately. We can even get to the point where we become in our thinking like Job's wife and Job's friends, that there must be something wrong with me. That's why God is silent. So if I could just figure out what's wrong, if I can, if I can go back and get into my algebra days and go back through this formula and reverse things, and if I can just find what X is, then I'll be able to know what I've done to offend God, then I can make it right. Because I'm tired of feeling like I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm putting this out before God and why isn't he answering me? Where is he? In Job, these are some of the words that Job says in chapter 13. Summon me, God. Summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. Could you just do that? Could you just reply? Just let me know you're there. Just let me know. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. He doesn't believe he has any, but he's saying, if there is, show me, point it out so that I can can do something about this. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? And then chapter 30, verse 20, Job says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Have you not felt what Job feels here? Have you not expressed in some way what Job is expressing in these, in these verses? The pain of not hearing from God. Not getting an answer. And not only are you not getting an answer, as far as you're concerned, maybe you're like Joseph where there's at least some circumstances that would work themselves out that you would go, okay, yeah, God is with me. I know he's there. But Job, he doesn't seem to have any indication and he wonders, has he just completely abandoned me? Is is God willing suffering on my life simply for the sake of suffering? What's going on here? I stand before God and he just looks at me. He sees all this suffering and guess what he does? Nothing. That's what he does. That's where Job is. That's what he feels. From chapter 3... Through chapter 37, Job and his friends go back and forth, speak to each other, accusing one another. It's only in chapter 38 that God finally breaks the silence. And when God finally speaks, he doesn't give Job an answer to his why question. Why? He just gives Job more questions. Questions that Job himself can't even answer. So let me end with this. The response of faith in the midst of silence. What do you do? If you're experiencing silence of God today, what do you do? How do you have faith in the midst of this? 
how am I supposed to have faith in a God who doesn't seem very interested in my life right now, who won't answer my prayers, and I, and I can't even hear from him? Don't we have the Holy Spirit in us, and part of the Holy Spirit is to speak? And as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, doesn't he teach, doesn't he remind? In, in Romans chapter 8, doesn't he testify? Why, why am I not experiencing this? So, response number one, trust that God is present in the silence. Trust that God is present in the silence. For those who are in Christ, we do have the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God with us. Trust the presence of God even when you don't get the answer, even when God is silent. And let me just remind you of this. Let me just remind you of this one fact of our own human existence that you can oftentimes tell the strength of a relationship, a friendship, a marriage relationship, by how comfortable you are together in silence. When you're in the car for hours and you don't say a word, and it's okay. When you sit down at the coffee shop thinking you're going to have a three-hour conversation, and sometimes you just sit. We see how comfortable we are with our friends when we're able to simply sit together in quiet and still be with each other. There's something powerful about just the fact of the presence of God and the fact that the presence of God would be with us through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and says, I'm, I'm with you. When Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will send the Spirit to be with you, and He's with us. And He does testify to us, and He does minister to us, but what He does more than anything else is He's just with us. He's the presence of God in our lives. Trust that God is present in the silence. Number two, cry out to God in the silence. Like Job, don't be afraid to cry out. Don't be afraid to tell God what is on your mind. He already knows what's on your mind. He doesn't need to hear new information about how you're feeling about life, how you're feeling about yourself, how you're feeling about your so-called friends, how you're feeling about your situation, or even how you're feeling about God. God already knows every thought, every emotion, everything that's passed through your mind. The things that you haven't said are in front of God. They're before God. He knows them. But I believe what God does for us is He invites us to speak what's on our mind for our own sake, to get it out, to get the emotion out, to be able to say it, guess what? God can handle it. He's that good. He's that big. Can you believe that, that the, the greatest number of psalms that we have and of the 150 songs that have been left for us, most of them are songs of lament? Can you believe that God would allow lament to be inspired scripture and that some of the very last words of Jesus on the cross would be psalms of lament from Psalm 22? Can you believe that lament is inspired? That the book of Job and all the crying and all the calling is left for us as God-breathed words. This is an act of faith. Lament sometimes is, feels like a sinful thing to do. But lament is an act of faith. Job believes that God is just. 
that he's fair, that he's loving, that he's compassionate, that he's a speaking God. And so he expects God to show up. So cry out to God in the midst of your silence, like Job did. Number three, wait for the larger purposes of God to be revealed, like Joseph did. Even if you don't live to see those larger purposes, trust that God is at work to bring about those larger purposes. Joseph is at least able to discern the work of God through his circumstances. So God is leading and revealing not through direct spoken words, but through the events of his life. In chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph tells his brothers when, he, when they finally are, are the ones who are coming into Egypt to get food, the very food that Joseph has been in charge of storing up the famine was so widespread that it reached back in, into Israel, into Canaan. And so they have to come down at Jacob's behest to come and get some food. And in this exchange, these trips that the brothers make, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he tells them, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times he says, it wasn't you, it wasn't me, it wasn't Potiphar, it wasn't anybody else. It was God who was doing this. Joseph finally says in chapter 50, verse 19, he says to his brothers, after Jacob has died and now they're afraid, now that our dad's gone, we're really in trouble. And Joseph calms them and says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We sometimes call this providence. Providence which comes from two Latin words that are put together. Pro video, video, obviously, it's where we get our word here. Providence, meaning to see before. God sees before our lives. God sees before the events happen. God sees before the pain inflicts us. God sees before. This is providence. God's seeing before our lives the big purposes that he has. This is not to say, this is not a way of saying what's very popular in culture, but is not a verse from the Bible that everything happens for a reason. Makes me want to stick my finger in the back of my throat gag. Everything happens for a reason. Everything, so everything is in charge. The stars are in charge. Fate is in charge. Everything happens for a reason. You know, we, we, we throw up all the golf balls and then boom, 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 boom. They all fall into perfect holes. That's how it happens. That's, what, that's what's going on here? No. God is the one who is working. God has a reason. And even if other people intend ill, He's able to come along and redeem. And finally, trust that God will be silent about our circumstances at times 
Sometimes you're going to be crying out for, for him to give you a word about your situation, your condition, your, your circumstances in life. You're going to be praying to him and he won't give you a word about it. He will remain silent about your circumstances at times. But he has spoken, is speaking, and will speak clearly about his character. He may not always give you a word about your circumstances, but he has definitively and ultimately given you a word about his character. And it never changes. He doesn't go back on it. So the circumstances are going to be up and down, just like Joseph's life. You're going to have long periods of blessing like Job and long periods of, of pain like Job. And God may be silent about those things, but he will not be silent about his character. This was something that Job wrestled with. He went back and forth on. You might be like Job and never know the reason for God's action or inaction or silence or apparent hiddenness. You may never be given a reason why. You may go to your grave. You may meet the Lord, and then maybe you'll know why. But you may not know the why of it this side of heaven. Or you might be like Joseph and know only after you are through the experience on the other side of God's silence. But either way, what we may know in the present is what God reveals to us about Himself and His heart and His character. So the very heart of God, the mind of God, the ways of God, the nature of God, the character of God can be what He speaks loud and clear in the midst of your unsettled circumstances so that you are holding on to Him and not the blessing. You're wallowing in His presence rather than wallowing in your pitiful circumstances. We can know his character in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through him he made the universe. God is okay with silence. He existed in silence before creation. He existed in community at the same time existing as father, son and spirit. Oh the conversations they must have had. And so we can be okay with silence as well, knowing that He's with us. Christ experienced the silence of God on the cross. Christ experienced the silence of death in the empty tomb. And through that silence, God spoke loudly and clearly, I love this world, and I will have the final word. And in the midst of your circumstances today, by the character of His Holy Spirit in us who are in Christ, and by the character of Christ himself and by the character of our loving Father, he has given us his final word. And the final word of God is a good word. Let's stand together. I'd like to invite our prayer teams to come. And perhaps what you need today is silence. Perhaps if you don't have the words, you need someone to simply pray for you and to pray over you. There are a variety of needs every Sunday. Some of you need to take the very first initial step of faith in Christ. We can talk to you.